Law of Self-Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Welcome to our ongoing coverage of the Minnesota murder trial of Derek Chauvin over the in-custody death of George Floyd. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branker for Law and Self-Defense. Today's content is sponsored by CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. CCW Safe, in effect, promises to pay their members legal expenses if their member is involved in a use of force event, and those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. A typical aggravated assault charge, what can happen if you simply point your gun at another person in self-defense, don't fire a shot, don't hurt anybody, can risk a 10- or 20-year felony sentence and cost as much as thirty to $50,000 in legal fees to defend, and that's just for the pre trial expense. If you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be useful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you have the legal resources you need to fight the legal battle the way you'd want it fought. Now, I've looked at all these types of services you might imagine, and I found that CCW Safe is the best fit for me. I'm a member. My wife, Emily, is a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do encourage you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member of CCWSafe, you can save 10% off your membership at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe, using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law well, of Self-Defense, testimony of only 10. one witness, but it was a witness of great importance to the defense, and therefore one whose testimony the state would perceive as important to damage. This was the defense medical expert witness, Dr. David Fowler, a retired forensic pathologist. To not bury the lead, Dr. Fowler did what the defense needed done today and did it well. That's not to say his performance was perfect. He took a few hits off prosecutor Jerry Blackwell during cross-examination, and he could have done better deflecting some of those attacks. At the same time, however, Blackwell's rather over-the-top cross-examination of Fowler was initially too aggressive for Judge Cahill's liking, resulting in a rapid sidebar and a more restrained Blackwell moments later. And Blackwell's resort to snark led him to overreach several times, providing opportunities for defense counterattack that defense counsel Eric Nelson did not pass up. So overall, a good day for the defense today when they very much needed one, especially after the relatively weak performance of defense expert witness for use of force Barry Broad just yesterday. I'll dive into the testimony of Dr. Fowler in some detail in a moment, but first let me touch upon A couple of housekeeping matters that were addressed this morning prior to the jury being brought into the courtroom. First, the defense finally made its motion for acquittal. The prosecution argued against that motion, and Judge Cahill denied the defense motion for acquittal. And this was all entirely predictable. The legal standard for acquittal that Judge Cahill was obliged to apply was to assume that everything the state claimed was 100% true and then decide if a reasonable jury could possibly arrive at a guilty verdict under those circumstances. Now, unless the prosecution is entirely inept, and this one is not, or the evidence was unambiguously lacking on a required element of a charged crime, and the prosecution made sure that wasn't allowed to occur here, well, then there's always at least some evidence for a jury to consider. 
Once that's the case, and we are required to view that evidence, not impartially, like a jury is supposed to do, but in the light most favorable to the prosecution, a guilty verdict is always at least theoretically possible, and a judgment for acquittal must be denied. So that took care of the motion for acquittal, as frankly, I believe we all expected would occur. The next housekeeping involved Maurice Hall, the male passenger in Floyd's Mercedes SUV at the time of his in-custody death on May 25th, 2020, who's also reported to be a drug dealer and who is currently in jail with his own legal challenges. The defense had originally planned to call Maurice Hall as a witness in this case, focused particularly on Floyd's drug use and intoxicated behavior when officers first approached the Mercedes SUV in which Floyd was sitting in the driver's seat. Maurice Hall eventually realized, however, that he was potentially on the hook for third-degree murder over Floyd's apparent drug overdose death, and through his public defender, he informed the court that if called to testify, he would plead the Fifth Amendment. Now, there were various arguments made at various times about the extent to which it might be possible to have the defense subpoena Hall into this trial to testify but in the end, that was all resolved this morning. Hall asserted a blanket Fifth Amendment privilege to any and all questions he might be asked having anything to do with George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. Judge Cahill acknowledged that privilege and thus expired any hope the defense might have had to get Maurice Hall on the witness stand. And frankly, I'm not sure it really matters that much. Uh, given the toxicology results showing fentanyl and meth in Floyd's system, uh, the pills coated in Floyd's saliva, and DNA found in the patrol car, the testimony of the Cup Foods clerk that Floyd appeared high, and the testimony of female SUV passenger and Floyd ex-girlfriend, Shawanda Hill, of Floyd apparently succumbing to a fentanyl overdose while in the vehicle. I'm not sure how much more Maurice Hall would have added to a rather unambiguous narrative of Floyd being intoxicated on the day in question. In any case, that took care of any questions over Hall's assertion of his Fifth Amendment privilege and whether he would testify in the Chauvin trial, he will not. So that gets us to defense expert witness David Fowler, Dr. David Fowler, forensic pathologist, the only witness of the day. As already noted, Dr. Fowler was a very solid expert witness for the defense today and generally presented as extremely experienced and competent. His South African accent probably didn't hurt either. Um, despite the accent... Uh, Fowler had worked as a forensic pathologist for a couple of decades, primarily in various senior medical examiner type roles for the state of Maryland. And before we dive in further, it's worth recalling that the prosecution really has to prove two distinct arguments in order to win a conviction on the legal merits in this case. First, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Chauvin's conduct was a substantial contributing factor in Floyd's death. That alone, however, is not enough. They must also prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Chauvin's use of force was not legally justified. A justified use of force, even one that directly caused Floyd's death, would not be criminal conduct. Yesterday's testimony by defense use of force expert Barry Broad was intended to establish reasonable doubt on the justified use of force question, and as I've written, that didn't go particularly well. Today's testimony by Dr. Fowler is intended to establish reasonable doubt that Chauvin's conduct was a substantial contributor to Floyd's death, and it's noted Floyd did a reasonably good job today. Whether it was sufficient to meet the needs of the defense, ultimately only the jury can decide. So let's start with direct questioning. 
As is always the case with expert witnesses on direct, the first 20 minutes or so were spent by defense counsel Eric Nelson stepping through Fowler's education, experience, publications, professional associations, and all the other facets of his career that imbue him with the necessary authority and credibility to serve effectively as an expert witness. One interesting facet of Fowler's testimony is that although currently retired from his full-time jobs, he apparently consults for a private enterprise panel of various medical experts. My sense was that this was, in effect, a business designed to provide high-end scientific consultancy to the legal community. This arrangement also allows any single member of the business to involve others with their own distinct scientific expertise to inform their scientific analysis on these kinds of consulting cases, providing a much broader base of scientific expertise than any single individual was likely to possess on his own. Now, with the defense presenting its case in chief, uh, the mission for defense counsel Nelson is to establish reasonable doubt on either of the two arguments I've already mentioned. That is, establish either a reasonable doubt that Chauvin's use of force was unlawful, create in the minds of the jury a reasonable doubt that it was misconduct, or establish a reasonable doubt that Chauvin's conduct was a substantial contributor to Floyd's death. As one should expect from a retained expert witness, Dr. Fowler was prepared to say the magic words that the defense needed said in the context of having formed an opinion to a reasonable degree of professional certainty as to the cause and manner of George Floyd's death. And that opinion is that George Floyd had a sudden cardiac arrhythmia due to atherosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease during his restraint by the police. Now, there were also contributory conditions that led to this fatal outcome, including Floyd's existing heart disease, substantial coronary artery occlusion, and pathological hypertension resulting in an enlarged heart, fentanyl and methamphetamine toxicity, an existing paraganglioma, and another factor mentioned for the first time today, possible exposure to carbon monoxide from the exhaust of squad car 320 as Floyd was prone on the street. In his direct questioning of Fowler, defense counsel Eric Nelson touched upon a broad area of issues where the prosecution, during its case in chief, had raised apparent vulnerabilities for the defense. For example, the state had made frequent reference to the death certificate, citing the manner of death as having been homicide. Now, most of us will recognize that the use of the word homicide on a death certificate has solely medical consequences and is not a legal finding of any sort. Indeed, even in a legal context, a homicide is not always a crime, self-defense, for example. There's always a risk, however, that a jury will apply the layman's understanding of homicide to mean unlawful killing, and Nelson took steps to address this. First, he reminded the jury of the medical versus legal application of homicide with respect to the death certificate. He also had Dr. Fowler step through the various components of a death certificate to clarify where an actual cause of death was being asserted and by what means. Nelson also had Fowler step through the five options for manner of death, homicide, suicide, accident, natural, and undetermined, to which Nelson would circle back later. The real take-home message in all of this was that Fowler agreed that low oxygen played an important role in Floyd's death, but it was the manner in which that low oxygen state was achieved that made the difference in this case. More specifically, the state was essentially arguing that it was the subdual restraint by the officers upon Floyd that induced positional asphyxia, a low oxygen state, and a consequential fatal arrhythmia in Floyd's heart. Fowler's view, however, was that it was not a profound low oxygen state 
induced by the police via subdual restraint and positional asphyxia that caused Floyd's heart to stop, but rather that it was Floyd's exceptionally fragile physiological condition, a condition unknowable to the arresting officers, that made his heart exceptionally vulnerable to even the modest shortfall in oxygen caused by Floyd's decision to fight arrest, and that resulted in the cardiac arrest, and the cardiac arrest resulted in the profound low oxygen state that then ultimately killed him. Now, according to the defense narrative, it was, in effect, Floyd's own physiological fragility that killed him when he chose to subject himself to the justified use of force by police officers, compelling his compliance with lawful arrest, including his forcible 10-minute struggle with multiple police officers and subsequent restraint. This fragile physiological condition was the result, again, of Floyd's severe coronary artery occlusion, his pathological hypertension resulting in an enlarged heart, his lifelong abuse of fentanyl and methamphetamine, not to mention smoking both marijuana and cigarettes, his paraganglioma tumor, and even, argued today, his acute exposure to carbon monoxide while being restrained by police. As one might expect, Nelson had Fowler stepped through the various facets of this narrative of Floyd's death by fragile physiology in considerable detail, touching upon every major component of that narrative in a well-informed and expert manner delivered in a tone of quiet competence. And it was, frankly, a sharp contrast from the expert witness testimony of use of force expert Barry Broad, whose narrative on defense use of force was rather scattershot, not at all as comprehensive as the defense needed it to be, and which left many points of vulnerability for attack by the prosecution on cross-examination, which, of course, the prosecution did to good effect. Again, I'm not sure how much of that mess was the fault of Broad and how much was Nelson, but I am sure that it's Chauvin who's on the hook for that misstep either way. Now, I won't touch upon every single facet of Fowler's scientific testimony in the detail Uh, given by him at trial. I've provided the videos of the testimony embedded in the text version of today's content for that level of detail. Here, I'll just note that Nelson had Fowler explain why Floyd could have died of a cardiac arrest, even in the absence of apparent damage to heart cells, which were not found on microscope inspection during the autopsy, how a sudden arrhythmia would have resulted in a low oxygen condition to which Floyd was exceptionally vulnerable because of Floyd's enlarged heart induced by his pathological hypertension, again, made him particularly vulnerable to even a modest drop-off of oxygen and other resources to the heart, how Floyd's profound coronary artery occlusion made him even more vulnerable, how Floyd's heart disease primed him for a fatal arrhythmia, and perhaps an abrupt release of adrenaline from Floyd's paraganglioma, which was found in his lower abdomen, contributed physiologically as well. And all of this fragile physiology was further primed for catastrophic failure by various environmental factors, including Floyd's fentanyl toxicity, which reduced respiration and thus desperately needed oxygen, Floyd's methamphetamine use, which increased the heart's demand for resources, even as it reduced his body's ability to deliver those resources to the heart, as well as fostering failure of Floyd's biological pacemaker that prevents fatal arrhythmia. Uh, Methamphetamine interferes with the normal beating of the heart. Uh, Another environmental factor was the adrenaline released by the fight-or-flight response triggered by Floyd's decision to physically resist arrest. And perhaps 
Another environmental factor was even acute exposure to carbon monoxide being exhausted from Squad Car 320, whose exhaust pipe was only about a foot or so from Floyd's face. Uh, and that would have, carbon monoxide could have, I should say, have bound up a substantial portion of Floyd's hemoglobin and further reduced his oxygen-carrying capacity. Now, Nelson also had Fowler address the lack of any indication of physical injury, not even bruising, uh, much less broken bones or cervical damage to Floyd's neck and back. Um, when in Flo Fowler's lengthy experience in working such cases, uh, purported positional asphyxia cases, those kinds of signs of injury were, in fact, common. Nelson also took the same approach to the state's arguments that it was pressure on Floyd's hypopharynx that caused his death. Uh, Fowler had never seen that occur and found no reference to that occurring in the medical literature um, as a result of external pressure. He had seen references to it when an object was ingested. He used, as an example, a hot dog uh, could obstruct the hypopharynx. Uh, or if there was an internal tumor in the neck that was growing and applying pressure to the hypopharynx, but not from external pressure, particularly not a knee and shin, as in this case. Nelson also had Fowler speak authoritatively with respect to a number of studies of positional asphyxia that substantially undermined the state narrative that this was a clearly deadly restraint procedure that any reasonable officer should have known created a lethal danger to a suspect. Indeed, the studies indicated that even lengthy periods of subdual prone restraint, while subject to weights of as much as 225 pounds, showed little tendency to induce hypoxia in otherwise healthy subjects. As we'll see, this part of Fowler's direct testimony would prove particularly offensive to the state, um, as would be revealed during their cross-examination of him. Obviously, all of this presents quite a different image of Floyd's death than the blood choke described by MMA expert Donald Williams or the external or internal respiratory choke claimed by other state witnesses or the forcible compression of Floyd's respiratory physiology, his chest and, and uh, abdomen claimed by still others, or any of the other state narratives of how the conduct of Chauvin and the other officers was a substantial rather than a lawful and incidental contributor to Floyd's death. In short, as one should expect, there was little drama in the direct questioning of Dr. Fowler. It went pretty well, and you can view his direct testimony embedded in the text version of today's content. And that brings us to the cross-examination of Fowler, which was conducted by Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell, whose performance here is perhaps best described as contemptuous, argumentative, full of snark, and misleading to the point of arguably qualifying as propagating outright false narratives to the jury. Now, before I go on, I do feel obliged to note that as negative as that description of Blackwell's performance is, that does not mean that it was ineffective in the eyes of the jury. Many prosecutors intentionally adopt such aggressive cross-examination precisely because it works. It can throw the witness off balance and badger the witness into passively acceding to the angry attorney's portrayal of the testimony and evidence, if only to make getting off the witness stand come sooner than might otherwise be the case. Please just make it stop. I'm afraid we saw a bit of this yesterday during Prosecutor Schlesher's equally aggressive cross-examination of defense use of force expert witness Barry Broad. And it must be said, there was a bit of that reaction from Fowler as well. So when I write that Fowler did a solid job, but not a perfect job, I'm really referring to those portions of his cross-examination where he appeared off balance 
and malleable to the pressures being applied by Blackwell. So Blackwell began his cross-examination like a man on fire with contempt dripping from his voice and engaging Fowler in a manner that, to this small-town attorney, was outrageously disrespectful and argumentative. This aggressive approach to Fowler began with a line of questions that superficially asked Fowler how, how an expert should reasonably approach a case, but which were obviously intended to suggest to the jury that Fowler had approached the case in an entirely unreasonable manner. For example, Fowler asked, Would you agree that an expert witness should be objective? Yes. Fair? Yes. Impartial? Yes. You agree that you should be thorough? Yes. In other words, that you should do your damn homework before coming into court? Yes. I added the word damned, by the way. That was not in Blackwell's question. Blackwell continued, an expert shouldn't jump to conclusions? Yes. Shouldn't connect facts in a way that's biased? Yes. Shouldn't cherry pick facts? Yes. Shouldn't intentionally confuse the jury? Yes. Fowler agreed to all that, as anybody would. Frankly, I was about ready for Blackwell to ask Fowler to agree that an expert witness in a trial shouldn't fornicate with barn animals, should he? By this point, however, Judge Cahill, who has rather rigidly enforced at least superficial signs of respect among the parties and towards witnesses while in his courtroom, had had enough of Blackwell's argumentative conduct. He called a brief sidebar, and it was a somewhat subdued Blackwell who returned to continue his cross-examination of Fowler. But if the contempt had been ratcheted down at Judge Cahill's order, uh, Blackwell cranked the snark knob up to 11. Blackwell was particularly offended by the sudden references by the defense to the possibility that carbon monoxide from Squad 320's exhaust could have been a contributing factor in Floyd's death. Frankly, I'm not sure why the state would be surprised by this angle, because it was covered in Fowler's expert report, delivered and shared with the prosecution way back in February. Blackwell asked if it was true that there was nothing about carbon monoxide in the autopsy report. Well, everyone knew that because medical examiner Thomas Baker hadn't considered the issue of carbon monoxide during autopsy. Blackwell asked, all these EPA and CDC and California car exhaust studies and regulations about carbon monoxide that you cite here in court, you've never actually been an industrial hygienist, have you, Dr. Fowler? Well, of course he hadn't been. Frankly, I don't even know if there's such a job as an industrial hygienist. Fowler went on, can you tell the jury exactly what level of carbon monoxide Floyd had in his system when he died? Well, naturally not, because the state of Minnesota had never bothered to look, and they had the body. Blackwell also began to start tripping himself up in his cross of Fowler, what I sometimes refer to as stepping on his own rake. Do you even know if the squad car was running? Well, there were indications it was running, such as moisture dripping from the exhaust, Fowler answered. So you just assumed it was running? I mean, we all know that if you assume, you make an ass out of you and me, right? Well, no, answered Fowler. I didn't assume anything. I made a reasonable inference from the evidence, which is what every witness is supposed to do. Have you ever even seen the squad car in real life? Asked Blackwell. Well, no, answered Fowler. Sensing the possibility of a kill shot here, Blackwell jumped. Unfortunately for Blackwell, it was his turn to do the step on the rake routine. Do you even know the make and model of this vehicle? He asked in a voice of outrage, certain, of course, that Fowler would not know and would therefore have profoundly uncut his credibility on this point. And again, this illustrates why the prudent lawyer never asks the question he doesn't already know the answer to. 
Why, yes, answered Fowler, I do. It was a Ford Explorer police interceptor model. Well, fine, but do you even know what exhaust arrangement that vehicle has? Again, in a tone of moral outrage and with the confidence that Fowler would know nothing of the sort. Why, I do, answered Fowler. It has a four-pipe exhaust arrangement with two exhaust pipes at each side of the rear of the vehicle. Double ouch. I mean, holy cow, that's right out of the movie My Cousin Vinny. By the way, the best legal movie ever made, in my humble opinion. Blackwell stepped back to asking Fowler for data that Blackwell knew very well the consulting pathologist wouldn't have. Do you have actual data on the carbon monoxide levels in Floyd's breathing zone while he was in subdual restraint and neck compression? Of course not. Nobody knows. It was never measured. Incidentally, Blackwell worked hard to repeat the phrases subdual restraint and neck compression and nine minutes and 29 seconds as frequently as possible into his questioning during cross-examination of Fowler and afterwards. Apparently, these are his equivalent of Johnny Cochran's if the glove don't fit, you must acquit during the 1995 double murder trial of O.J. Simpson. Now, you might laugh at that, uh, that he's using these phrases, but in fact, such repetition is a proven method of effective persuasion. In any case, I recommend you prepare yourself to hear those phrases repeated frequently during closing arguments, assuming Blackwell participates in closing arguments. And frankly, I'd be shocked if he did not, given the racial overtones to this trial. Remember, he did participate in opening. Blackwell's asking for data or findings he knew very well did not exist and which Fowler had never claimed to exist was a common theme throughout his cross-examination of the pathologist. Um, do you agree that Dr. Baker, the medical examiner, found no evidence of carbon dioxide poisoning as a cause of Floyd's death? Well, first of all, Fowler didn't claim carbon monoxide poisoning as a substantial cause of death, but merely another among many complicating factors that may have contributed to Floyd's death. But second, Baker didn't report any carbon monoxide findings because he never looked for any, which is a different matter than carbon monoxide not playing a possible role. Blackwell also asked a great many questions that appeared intended to cast doubt as to whether Floyd had self-ingested fentanyl methamphetamine tablets when approached by the police. Now, during direct questioning by Nelson, Dr. Fowler had been asked if he'd spotted in a photograph a small white object in still photos of Floyd as Floyd was being held at gunpoint by Officer Lane uh, while Floyd was still in the driver's seat of his SUV. And you could see a white object indeed in Floyd's mouth. And Fowler did make an identification of a white object in Floyd's mouth. Now, Blackwell showed a short video from Inside Cup Foods of Floyd holding a banana and asked, can you see him chewing food in that video? And Fowler ultimately agreed that Floyd's mouth was moving in a chewing type manner. But I don't know why he agreed, other than pressure from Blackwell, because I personally didn't see anything of the sort in that video. What I did see was Floyd staggering visibly, uh, but that went unnoticed um, by the uh, everyone else, apparently, in court. Um, Blackwell asked, how could you possibly know the white object in Floyd's mouth while seated in the SUV, wasn't food rather than a pill? Well, answered Fowler, I never said it was a pill. I merely said it was a white substance. Indeed, the only person to explicitly label that white object a pill was Blackwell himself. Another misstep, another step on the rake on his part. Another consistent behavior by Blackwell on cross-examination was to preface his snarky questions with the phrase, in order to avoid confusing the jury, and I saw a number of comments in today's live post 
uh, asking why he kept repeating that phrase. Well, there's a reason, actually. The reason is that he likely believed it would gain him more freedom of action in asking questions that the court might otherwise find objectionable. The reason for this is that this is because the reason expert witnesses are allowed to testify about their opinions, which normal fact witnesses are not allowed to do, is because the expert's role in the trial is to help the jury understand issues that would not be understood but for the expert's opinion. That is to help the jury avoid confusion. So if Blackwell could cloak his snarky question as being intended to meet that core purpose of an expert witness by prefacing it as being asked in the interest of avoiding confusion of the jury, perhaps Cahill would be much more inclined to let the question go even borderline questions. It's much like the scene in the original Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi waves his hand slightly in front of two most Isley stormtroopers and informs them that these are not the droids you're looking for. Yet another rhetorical trick used by Blackwell was to purport to impeach Dr. Fowler's direct testimony by reading extensively from various textbooks, studies, even an old affidavit from a prominent scientist on the subject of positional asphyxiation, and even from a deposition of Dr. Fowler himself from an unrelated legal proceeding. I have a couple of observations on this trick by Blackwell. And first, to my mind, Blackwell's conduct here grossly exceeded reasonable attempts to impeach Fowler and actually began to be Blackwell himself offering testimony in front of the jury, and that's not supposed to be allowed. Second, in nearly every instance of this trick, it came back to bite Blackwell, uh, on the buttocks, to put it politely. Why? Because on redirect of Dr. Fowler by Nelson, it was revealed that Blackwell had read selected portions of these materials out of context. He'd mischaracterized other readings, and sometimes he'd carefully skipped portions that, when read aloud by Nelson, effectively reversed the meaning claimed by Blackwell when he read them on cross-examination. For example, on direct, Fowler had testified that a noted scientist who had been very prominent about the dangers of positional asphyxia had ultimately retracted his concerns after conducting a variety of clinical studies on the subject. Well, on cross-examination, Blackwell pulled up this affidavit of the same scientist in which he stated under oath that he remained concerned about the positional asphyxiation. Is that proof that Fowler was wrong or untruthful? about the claimed retraction of concern about positional asphyxia by this prominent scientist? Well, it would turn out on redirect, not so much. On redirect by Nelson, it turned out that Blackwell had skipped some important content in the affidavit, specifically that the positional asphyxia that famous scientist remained concerned about was not general in nature, but the concern applied only to suspects who were obese or who suffered from congestive heart failure. Well, Floyd was not obese, and the officers had no reason to infer congestive heart failure, so Floyd would not have been among the suspects about whom this scientist would still believe positional asphyxia to be a real concern. Yet another trick that Blackwell made great use of was to ask Fowler if the pathologist had done any qualitative modeling in his analysis for this case. You'll recall that one of the state's purported expert witnesses had shown up in court with a bunch of demonstrative exhibits that claimed to quantitatively measure Floyd's blood oxygen level with single-digit percent precision based on body-worn camera, bystander, and surveillance videos. Of course, Fowler had done nothing of the sort of this quantitative modeling because Fowler's not a scientific hack. 
But it opened the door for Blackwell to continually argue about quantitative models he knew very well Fowler had made, and he hadn't made them for the perfectly good reason that they would have been nonsense. Did you quantitatively model the pressure to Floyd's body? No. Did you quantitatively model oxygen reserves? No. Did you quantitatively model EELV? No. Did you quantitatively model how much air Floyd took in with each breath during that subdual restraint and positional asphyxia over those nine minutes and 29 seconds? No. Well, this was all, to my view, ridiculous. That doesn't mean, however, that it might not have appeared compelling cross-examination to the jury. And this is one of the areas in which I felt Fowler dropped the ball, or maybe Nelson dropped it on prep of Fowler. Fowler could have almost certainly prevented this repetitive scolding by Blackwell by simply answering the first time, no, I didn't quantitatively model anything in this case. Then if Blackwell had attempted to pose the quantitative modeling framing repetitively as he did in actual cross-examination, Nelson could have immediately objected that the question was asked and answered. He already told you he didn't quantitatively model anything. And Judge Cahill would almost certainly have upheld an objection on that basis. Blackwell also attacked Fowler with respect to the question of whether Chauvin, who weighed a mere 140 pounds, could have possibly applied enough pressure based on his position relative to Floyd to have had a fatal effect. That was Nelson's argument on direct questioning. Blackwell asked, you know police officers carry equipment? Yes. That equipment has weight? Yes. Did you consider the weight of all that equipment in coming to your conclusion? No, Fowler conceded he had not. I should have. This was another relatively rare, poor response by Fowler. But Nelson would make up for it later. Another soon-to-be-exposed gaffe that was committed by Blackwell was when he attempted to mislead the jury on the issue of Floyd repeatedly declaring he could not breathe long before he was placed in prone on the street. Remember, he was saying it as he was being uh, tried to be pushed into the squad car. Blackwell asked, could you not see Floyd being choked by the officers even as they were trying to get him into the squad car? Uh, No, I don't recall seeing that, answered Fowler. So Blackwell asked for a couple of photos to be pulled up. Uh, Do you see Officer Chauvin's arm around Floyd's neck in that photo? And indeed, Chauvin's arm was rather loosely draped around Floyd's neck. Was that a point for Blackwell? Was Fowler too inobservant to see that Floyd was actually being choked at every point that he claimed he could not breathe? Well, not for long. Again, Nelson would circle back to this point on redirect, and I'll cover that in a moment. So in summary, overall then, with this cross-examination, I didn't feel that Blackwell scored any major hits on Fowler, on Cross, or perhaps more accurately, I should say, whatever hits he appeared to have scored on Cross were exposed as the misdirection, to put it nicely, that they were um, by Nelson on redirect. There is, of course, a great deal more detail to Blackwell's cross of Fowler. It was well over an hour, I believe, uh, but I've shared the most important facets already. And of course, I've embedded the video of the cross-examination in the text version of today's content. So there was a maybe 10-minute redirect of Fowler by Nelson, and Nelson did a really excellent job on redirect uh, with particular emphasis on addressing any apparent blows that Blackwell might have appeared to land during cross-examination. For example, on the issue of Fowler not having considered the weight of Chauvin's equipment, Nelson asked, had the state of Minnesota ever provided access to that equipment so you could weigh it? They had not. To your knowledge, has the state of Minnesota itself ever made measurements of Chauvin's equipment? Not that I ever saw, said Dr. Fowler. 
Then Nelson turned the whole, you didn't even bother to consider the weight of the equipment, you dummy, talking point back on the prosecution. Whatever the weight of the equipment, after all, it would only have made Chauvin heavier, right? That's the state's point of bringing it up. More weight, more pressure, more pressure, more lethal effect. But of course, more weight and pressure would also be expected to have other consequences. You said you saw no evidence of bruising to Floyd's back on autopsy report? I did not. Not even from Chauvin's knee and shin? Nope. When you consider not just Chauvin's weight, but also the weight of his equipment, would that make it more probable that we should have seen injury if undue force was used? Why, more likely, of course. But yet there was no bruising, no hemorrhage, nothing. Correct. With respect to Fowler's alleged failure to conduct carbon monoxide studies or testing, Nelson asked if his report had mentioned carbon monoxide as an issue way back in February when it was released to both the defense and the state. No, it hadn't. And to your knowledge, has the state of Minnesota conducted any tests or experiments on carbon monoxide exposure of this type itself? No, they have not. Nelson also had an opportunity to touch upon the state's continually last-minute dumping of exhibits onto the defense, even while the trial is taking place. He asked Fowler, you studied photographs of the bottom of the squad car 320, correct? I did, answered Fowler. Were those provided by the state? Yes. Provided since this trial started? Uh, Yes, just in the last couple of days, answered Fowler. Now, I doubt the jury understood the significance of this exchange, the continual dump during the trial of literally thousands of pieces of evidence on the defense. And I can't see any ready means to explain that to the jury, the significance of that. But it's now part of the record of the proceedings, and it will be available for reference should an appeal of a conviction be necessary. You'll recall Blackwell's attempted misdirection on the matter of the white substance in Floyd's mouth. Uh, Couldn't that be food? He desperately didn't want it presented as a pill in Floyd's mouth. Nelson asked Fowler, can you say what that white substance was with any specificity? I can't, agreed Fowler. But you agree that white pill fragments were found in squad car 320? Yes. And those white pill fragments tested positive for saliva? They did. And that saliva tested positive for Floyd's DNA, they did. It was at this point during redirect that Nelson exposed each of the misleading readings, quote, unquote, by Blackwell of various textbook studies, affidavits, and depositions. I won't cover that again here. I already described an example of that early on, but at least three or four or five of these occurred, and Nelson exposed all of them here. Nelson here also circled back to Blackwell's claim that Floyd had been choked by officers at every point that he claimed he could not breathe, including when he was still forcibly resisting, being placed into Squad 320 long before he was put prone on the street. Remember, I talked about Blackwell putting, pulling up those photos a moment ago with Chauvin's arm draped around um, Floyd's neck. Well, Nelson pulled up the same photos used by Blackwell and pointed out, what side of the car is that where... Chauvin apparently has his arm around Floyd's neck. Oh, that's the street side of the car, Fowler answered. Is that where Floyd got into the car or was pulled out of the car? Well, out of the car. Was he saying at this moment that he could not breathe? He was not. Was Chauvin's arm positioned to choke him? Nope. It was loosely draped around Floyd's neck with clear space between the front of Floyd's neck and Chauvin's arm. Then Nelson pulled up 
slightly earlier photos. What side of the car is this? The sidewalk side. Were Floyd's being put in the car? Yes. When he's actually saying he can't breathe? Yes. Is he being choked here? No. Well, in summary, I thought Nelson was very strong on redirect to Fowler. And of course, you can watch the video of that redirect embedded in the text version of today's content. There was also a very brief re-examination of Fowler, uh, re-cross-examination of Fowler uh, by Prosecutor Blackwell, but it didn't amount to anything substantive. Um, he asked, uh, did you see Floyd spitting pills out in Squad 320? And of course, Fowler said no. Um, but as if Floyd's DNA on the fragments of pills didn't give that game away. And it provided an opportunity for Blackwell to recite the subdual restraint and positional asphyxia and nine minutes, 29 seconds mantra a couple of more times. But incidentally, this time, the defense objected to that catchphrase every time Blackwell said it, and Judge Cahill sustained both those objections. And at that point, Blackwell had no further questions, and the court was effectively done with Dr. Fowler. And you can watch the brief recross of Fowler by Blackwell Again, the video that embedded in the text version of today's content. So in summary, it was a good day for the defense on the cause of death front with the job done very well, if not quite perfectly, by expert witness, forensic pathologist, Dr. Fowler. It was also a very nice contrast from yesterday's performance by use of force expert witness, Barry Broder on use of force issues. Whether today is enough to create the reasonable doubt on the issue of cause of death is, however, questionable. And that's assuming we're only looking at the actual legal merits of the case and not considering the fact that the jurors are now apparently commuting through riot-like conditions simply to arrive at the court each day. One way or another, however, we should expect to know the final outcome of this case soon and certainly, I would hope, by this time next week. And that's about all I have for all of you this evening for our end-of-day wrap-up commentary and analysis of today's court proceedings. Don't forget to join us again in the morning for our live streaming and live blogging of tomorrow's court proceedings, as well as for tomorrow's end-of-day wrap-up commentary and analysis in the evening. Before I go and view the ongoing riots raging presently in Minneapolis and likely to explode across the nation when this case arrives at a verdict or a mistrial. I've also taken the liberty of putting together a special opportunity to access our best-selling course, Lawful Defense Against Rioters, Looters, and Arson. If you're watching this in video form, you can see the link for that uh, displayed on the screen in front of you. If you're listening to this in audible format, you can simply point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash riot. Again, this course, Lawful Defense Against Rioters, Looters, and Arsonists, available in both online streamed and DVD formats at a very special discount for all of you enjoying our content for this trial. lawofselfdefense.com slash riot. And thanks as always to both Legal Insurrection and CCW Safe for the support they provide that makes my coverage of this trial possible. Okay, folks, until tomorrow morning, I am still Attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.